Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Welcome, enlightened investors. So delighted to be back with you again today. And we're going to take a look at how it is that we can make sense of commercial real estate capital markets. With over a decade of experience in both commercial and residential real estate financing, Huber Bongolan has sourced over $1 billion in debt and equity financing for land, construction, bridge, and permanent loans in all market sectors. Huber earned undergraduate degrees in economics and international studies, graduating cum laude. Also, with distinction, he also holds a master's in business administration and a master's in real estate development. He writes and speaks nationally about real estate trending topics. So welcome to the show, Huber, and share with us a memorable experience that helped you to be who you are today. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Allen, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. Really appreciate your time today, as well as your audience, anyone that's that's chiming in and listening to this in the future. But um, as far as a memorable experience of mine with commercial real estate from maybe some of my formative years when I was younger, my parents, as well as uncles, they really had a strong influence on me, especially family events in Philippines. So we'd always have these big family events. One of the hallmarks I loved was board game night. Always people would come with their board games. And mine specifically was Monopoly. Loved that game as a child. And I think my uncle, my father, they saw that spark in me where I kind of took to that game and the concepts of that game more than my fellow cousins or my brothers, my sisters. So from Monopoly, they introduced me to a little more advanced game from Robert Kiyosaki called Cashflow. And they saw how I just loved that game. So I think that was incredible in my like development, just all all of the concepts that you can learn in the, these little board games that with the right mentorship, they can really show you, you can make a career out of this. If you really like this type of stuff, they were more than happy to kind of show and lead me the way. And then after kind of learning as much as I could from them, and that's kind of a theme of my life is a consistent learner, always trying to improve, always trying. And that's why I love capital markets. There's always something changing, always something to learn. But that's when I sought higher education. So I really appreciate you reading, reading my bio, undergraduate, graduate school, just trying to learn as much as I can from the best and the brightest. That's always been something I sought after. Well, Huber, you've certainly had a lot of experience and a really strong background in finance. So we're really delighted to have you with us today to share that expertise because it's just something those of us who are in real estate and real estate investing, mm -hmm. I just think we can never really have a strong enough understanding and background in what we're dealing with in terms of finance and capital markets. Well, you work with uh, Stack Source. And tell us just a little bit about StackSource, uh, what is StackSource and how does it differ from traditional financing processes? Absolutely. So StackSource is a capital markets real estate brokerage. We are the middlemen intermediaries. Clients hire us in order to help them think through their capital stack. We give advice on, hey, there are certain structures between debt, equity, and then other tranches in between each of those two main components that could lead to higher returns or that can help you with XYZ part of your business plan. So number one is clients hire us for advice. But the way that we get paid is we help set up and establish and carry through a relationship with a lender or an equity provider. We help 
match it. We help find those lenders. We help create that market. So that way there's a competitive bidding process for our clients' deals. We negotiate all of the quotes and term sheets that come in on behalf of our clients, knowing what our clients are looking for in order to match our clients with the best or optimal lender or capital provider equity player. And then we see the process from start, from us signing a term sheet, submitting the initial deposit, all the way to the finish line, wiring, closing funds, and even sometimes there's follow-up questions thereafter. We really want to work hard on behalf of our clients, our fiduciary agreements to them, our responsibility is to them. So they hire us as kind of an outside counsel, outside CFO rather. I started off my commercial real estate experience in the more traditional capital market space, Um, worked under a firm in Century City, under one of the founders for about four years, learned as much as I could. And I started to notice that there were a lot of inefficiencies in the space where back not even that long ago, maybe three, four, five years pre-pandemic, if you said technology and commercial real estate, it didn't really, the thought was technology can't really do what we do. And you would just kind of throw the entire, throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's kind of technology can't do what we do. No one really spent time on it. I think the pandemic for how terrible it was, one of the hallmarks was it really opened people's eyes to, no, you there are parts of technology that can help our industry and especially our segment in the industry. There are things that, so instead of just throwing it all away, what are some pieces that we can pick up that make sense, that maybe does not need the human touch, although a lot of what we do does require human, but maybe doesn't need the human touch. And that is what Stackforce is trying to build on top of our capital markets brokerage that we have. So operationally, we are capital markets brokerage, but technology-wise, we are trying to input pieces of digitization or the online process that makes sense for our teammates, our clients, as well as our capital providers, lenders, and investors. So those are our three main stakeholders, key stakeholders. Well, technologies just over the last uh, couple of years have exploded in the industry, and it's just really difficult for any one particular individual to stay on top of it. So it's nice to hear that there are organizations that are pulling all of that together, because even though the technologies have exploded, in most cases, it's really piecemeal, and uh, it is really a challenge to get them all together, to get the, the real efficiencies out of them that are there when they come together as a unit there. Well, what are the the current uh, real estate capital uh, market trends? What are they doing today and where do you see them going in the future? Sure, absolutely. I think for most of your audience who are in this market, are in commercial real estate, I'm sure there are many professionals and maybe some that are just starting out. The biggest theme is interest rates and cap rates. Interest rates, where they're headed, what is the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell going to do next? And also, almost as importantly, is what are the market's expectations? of what he's going to do next. So we've seen in 2022 an escalation in interest rates in order to battle inflation. So this is the where you the degree in economics that I had and this is why I love studying it because in one year you think you know it all and then you a pandemic happens and everything changes and then you think you understand it and then inflation happens and then you try to understand it and then you try to think of what's happening. So the biggest dominating theme of 2022 and 2023 is uh, well 2022 was inflation and interest rates. I think 2023 is going to be interest rates and cap rates. What happens to cap rates in 2023? As investors, there's about a hundred and I think I saw from TREP or Creds IQ that there's about 162 billion of maturing loans in 2023 alone across 
different CMBS agencies, 162 billion that are maturing. What happens to those loans when refinancing is going to become a tough option for them because interest rates are so high, they may not size to the loan amount that's needed in order to take out the existing debt. Does that cause other parts of other tranches to become more popular, mezzanine financing, pref equity financing? Does that cause sellers to sell at higher cap rates, lower valuations in order to satisfy investors on their end? What happens in 2023? And I think, again, 2022 was inflation causing an effect on interest rates. I think 2023 is going to be interest rates causing an effect on cap rates, and you're going to start seeing it in the numbers. You're slowly seeing it in Q4. I think you're going to start seeing it much more in 2023. The market was really more stable, I think, in 2022 than what a lot of people expected, mm -hmm. because even though interest rates were increasing, inflation was also increasing. So interest, I mean, so rent rates were also increasing along with that. So investors, owners, operators, I think were able to keep up with that. Right. But the interesting twist that you just mentioned for 2023 is that aspect of all of these loans that are maturing. And with the high interest rates and with inflation stabilizing, rents are not going to be increasing this year to the rate that they did last year. Mm -hmm. I know it's impossible to really predict the future, but what is your take? What is your company's take on what is really going to happen with all of these loans that are maturing? Sure. I'll say my take, the company tries hard not to Save the crystal ball. So this is a Huber Bongolin uh, take on what's going to happen. So if I look back on, I'll start with inflation and interest rates. It was like, theoretically, you knew what was going to happen. It just didn't. It, now you see it. But in the moment, it was inflation was happening and interest rates still hadn't moved up in lockstep. And there wasn't a big mantra of a lot of like, it's going to happen. It was kind of thinking this was the new normal. And then it happened. And you're like, well, we always knew it was going to happen because textbook theory, theory it should happen. I feel like we're in that stage right now with cap rates where interest rates are going up, but cap rates are starting to inch or starting to, like you had just talked about because rents went up. So people are kind of hoping that they stay here or that in 2023, interest rates somehow come back down and cap rates stabilize. The Huber Bonglin perspective is, I think cap rates will absolutely increase. And why will they will increase? There might be a plethora of reasons. There could be some distressed selling going on. That could be it. I mean, that's usually what happens is someone needs to sell for whatever reason it may be. And if your NOI is staying stable, but your purchase price is going down or whatever your value is going down and that mark and that trades, there has to be a trade, right? You could do the crystallization event and have some theory behind it. But in order for the market to actually show up in the data, there has to be trades that actually occur. So I would think that there would be buying opportunities, but maybe in like the latter half of this year or early next year. So um, I think cap rates will rise. Right now, we're in a negative leverage situation where you have cap rates uh, for the audience. That's when your, your interest rate that you're signing on to is higher than your cap rate. So if like if cap rate, you kind of think of a proxy of the interest you're getting on a deal, then a negative leverage is a situation where you're paying more to the bank in the form of an interest rate than in theory what your property is cash flowing. So why would anyone do that? They might be banking on appreciation. They might be banking on a value added type play where, sure, I bought it at a high cap rate. But even if that cap rate stays stable, if I'm able to juice NOI somehow, maybe not through just normal, like if it's a stabilized property, that's going to be tough. But maybe there's a value add play, renovation play to it, then people could be trying to do that in this year. So I think the main theme is cap rate expansion in 2023, and then opportunities for buying in the middle to later half of this year. It's amazing to me how vibrant really the 
the commercial real estate market, particularly multifamily, mm -hmm. even self-storage, how vibrant it remained through 2020, 21, and 22, when it was so competitive. I mean, finding right. cash flow properties was almost impossible. A value-add properties was difficult because there were just so many institutional investors. And there, it would be nice to see some relief there, uh, particularly for us non-institutional investors. But we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, yeah. comes of it. But I, I, I do hope you're correct in that uh, cap rates do increase and that there are uh, more buying opportunities out there. We'll just have to wait and see. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. You never know. Your company certainly helps individuals go through this uh, financing process. But I think it's good for investors to have at least a basic foundation and a basic understanding of that process. So Hubert, tell us what it is that really we as investors really need to know just the basics about vetting financial providers. Sure, absolutely. I think the first thing for uh, someone to, a beginner, someone that's getting into to understand is not all capital providers are equal, even if they play in the same space. Another thing is a lot of clients or times that I, when I, I speak, there might be residential people that are very used to the residential space, residential financing, and then they're transitioning to the commercial space. And another big item is very different types of financing in terms of qualification. I used to work in the residential space and almost nothing was negotiable. Well, on the commercial side, everything is negotiable. Almost everything is negotiable. So that would be two foundationary things for, for anyone to understand is capital markets are not the same. I think if they walked into a US bank or if they're on the residential side and they went into a US bank or First Republic or Bank of America, you're really shopping for the lowest rate in town and who you think is going to give you the best service. Those are what you're solving for because you operate under the assumption that, hey, the process is going to be similar throughout everyone. Maybe, you know, if they don't give good service, it can be heard a little bit more, take a little bit longer. But as far as the process itself, it's going to be the same and you trust that. But on the commercial side, there's a lot of differences, nuances between capital providers, between lenders. There's also a big difference in experience that you're going to get depending on who you speak to. We call them deal champions, like the person within the firm. Am I speaking to a person that, you know, it's a turbulent time. People are moving. They're changing jobs. Am I talking to someone that just moved there recently? Or am I on the phone with the chief of credit, the head of credit that sits and I know their cell phone number? I'm texting them on a regular basis because the difference in your deal champion that you have will absolutely lead to a different experience for you as a borrower and a potentially different outcome because they have different levels of authority in order to push, push deals through. So absolutely difference in there's different firms out there that have very different nuances that act in different ways. The process between residential and commercial are very different. And then lastly is the people that you speak to even within a firm can have a very different experience. So I think that's really the human aspect of it. We talked about the technology marrying the human side. So the tech side of ours, we can get the data on who's out there, who's playing, who's moving shops, what are the different lending parameters or equity parameters that they all like, and how is it shifting? So we can get data like that. But then the human side of it is there. everyone has hundreds of emails to go through during the day. How do yours, how do they respond to yours in a timely manner? How do you get them, your paper to get to the top? And I think that's very much the relational human aspect to our industry. Enlightened investors, if you haven't done so already, be sure and click that like button and also click that share so others can take advantage of the content. And finally, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single one of our upcoming episodes. 
a couple more things there, if you can go into a little bit more detail here. Sure. You say that there are differences in processes where residential, I mean, it's it's going to be the same no matter who you go to. So what are some of those differences in terms yeah. of processes? For sure. So we'll start with the residential and then move to the commercial. On the residential, uh, there are three main factors. I kind of think of residential as like three legs of a stool. All three legs have to stand on their own. If one of them doesn't stand, the deal's not getting done. Hmm. And that's credit score, loan to value ratio, and debt to income ratio. Those are the three biggies on the residential side. Your credit score needs to be above a certain threshold or you'll have different interest rates or points that you get. Your loan to value ratio has to be above a different threshold or has to be below a certain threshold, depending on what type of conventional or program that you go with on the residential side. And then also your debt to income ratio as a person, what you're making, your, your debt divided by your gross income, the debt of the mortgage plus all of your debts, that has to be below a threshold. So you'll see that two of the three stools, those three components are people focused. It's person focused. You as an individual, what you're able to do, while one of them, the loan to value ratio is asset focused. But again, a big difference is the three stools. All three have to stand on their own. On the commercial side, the main difference is perception of risk is seen more as what can this property cash flow? It's seen more as an investment. Now, residential, more people are buying it to live in it. However, there are investments. There are, you could buy a second home or buy it as an investment property. But on the commercial side, it's really viewed as an investment property. So unlike three legs of a stool where all three have to stand on their own, they could absolutely be compensating factors. So you look at the sponsorship, there's like three big buckets, let's say, but if one of the buckets is like really strong, it can compensate for some of the other buckets. So I would say sponsorship is one bucket. So that's borrowers, residential side calls it borrowers, commercial side calls it sponsors. So sponsorship or the sponsorship team, their experience, their track record, as well as their financial strength, how does their personal balance sheet look? That's one bucket, let's say. The second bucket is the asset itself. How is it performing? Who is the credit? Is it a retail property that's a single tenant? You have Apple in there to a bulletproof lease. Okay. That's a huge compensating factor. Lender's going to rely on that tenant. And then, so the actual property itself is the second bucket. The third bucket for me is the actual overall business plan, location, demographics, where it's at, right? Does the business plan make sense for even what you're trying to do? Usually one of the first two ones, the sponsorship team or the property itself can overcompensate if it's very strong for any of the the other three that we just talked about there. So instead of it being like a three-legged stool on the residential side, it's kind of buckets of water. That's the way I like to think about it. And one can be super overflowing. And if it is, then the other two aspects, even if you know, huh, the business plan's kind of interesting, but this guy's shown he's done it hundreds of times before. Okay, we're going to mitigate that risk that way, that his track record mitigates that. Hmm, the tenant is not that strong in this property. Well, let's have the sponsorship sign recourse. So that way, if the tenant goes bust or they leave, then we can go after, okay, that's risk and mitigation. That is a big factor on the commercial side. And again, they can overcompensate for each other and the deal still gets done. Versus on the residential side, if the, one of those three legs of the stool pops out, the deal is going to be very hard if not impossible to get done. Thank you for that. That's uh, definitely is something that we all need to be uh, cognizant of and aware of before we even go into the process of looking for financing. Well, you say that lenders vary from lender to lender and different mm -hmm. lenders are doing different things for different types of properties. Right. What are your recommendations for any particular kind? What is self-storage going to be different than mm -hmm. multifamily and 
in terms of who you're going to go to, uh, RV parks, are they going to be different okay. financers, so on and so forth? The best way I can put it is lend, we'll, we'll stick on the lending side. So lenders, the different types of lenders have different personality traits, I like to say, different nuances, those personality traits that I'll go into. And then you as an investor deciding which one of those personality traits is best for my business plan. So first, I'd say the first layer is understanding the, the field, understanding who's out there, these different players, these different lenders. And then when you have a business plan as an investor, there could be multiple players that you go to, multiple firms that you go to, but they have different motivators. They have different things that they're looking for. And you, the secret sauce is making sure that your motivators, as your, your what you're looking for in your business plan, what outcome you want as an investor pairs, well. it's going to save you a lot of time and energy. So what I've seen in the past, and I'll go into specifics, is someone has a massive Excel list of hundreds of lenders that they've come across or they've seen whatnot, but the lenders are all over the place. So then they're going to take their deal and just start calling or start emailing all 100, 200. You can do that, but that's a huge time and effort. Like we're all solving, we all have 24 hours in a day. So it's a huge time suck to be doing that. But if you if you have the bandwidth or you have someone on your team that's specializing in it, okay, fine. Or like for us, we take the more strategic approach and what is it that our clients want? What are they looking for? What's important to them? What is the specific business plan? Now we know which personality type, which lenders are going to be the most aggressive and be the best fit for, again, what are our clients want? What are they looking for? What's most important to them of all the things that could be important to you? And then what is the actual business plan? Is it fitting? So there's eight main buckets. I keep saying buckets, but I'll say personality traits of lenders. One is agencies, CMBS shops, banks, credit unions, life companies, SBA loans, debt funds, private capital, private debt. These eight all think differently. Some similar and some play in similar playgrounds, but others are very different. So let's say the more stabilized ones, if you have a perm property and you're trying to go that route, uh, refinance, then you're probably in the world of life companies, CMBS shops, and agencies. Now I'll go to the exact other side of the spectrum, and then there's a middle ground. The other side of the spectrum where you have a ground-up construction play, a land loan, heavy, deep value add, you're probably looking at someone more on the private debt or the debt fund type space that specializes in that. I'm now in the middle ground. Who is like a full service firm that depending on who you are, they can play in both fields. Now you're talking banks and you're talking credit unions. So thinking on the stabilized side, so going back to stabilized sides where we have SBA loans, you have CMBS shops, you have agencies and you have life companies right? That's their specialty. Each one of them has a very nuanced uh, personality trait. The SBA loans is, are you an owner user? Are you operating a business out of more than 50% of the space, the physical space? Do you have time? Because just like going into DMV, an SBA loan is a government based on it's going to take some time in order to get it done. You got to be very patient. But for that patience, the government will reward you because they want to incentivize small businesses. Just like how they want to incentivize housing, they want to incentivize small businesses. They'll give you rock bottom rates. They'll give you, they'll give you very very accretive financing terms, but you got to be patient. So that would be an SBA type deal. A CMBS type deal is you have a very strong collateral. Is it they typically play best with cash flowing office, cash flowing self-storage, cash flowing retail? Those are kind of their best. They don't, while the sponsorship is something they will kind of consider. But really what's important is what is the financial performance of the property? They do delve in multifamily. They can do multifamily deals. But typically, the best player with multifamily stabilized is going to be your agencies. 
your Fannie, your Freddie, your your agency lenders, because those are, again, government-sponsored entities. And their goal, similar to SBA, where the SBA's goal is to really prop up our small business industry, the agency's role, the government, is a housing is important. We want to make sure there's liquidity in the housing market. So we, as the government-sponsored entity, is going to make sure that so they are the most aggressive. They're the ones that typically, now that's why capital markets change. They're not always, but they typically are because that's what they're built and set up to do. So then so on and so forth. Every single one of those eight that I talked about, they have different personality traits, different themes. So let's take, let's say that we were playing in the middle space with banks or credit unions. If I had a client and they said, hey, Huber, and this is very popular right now, where, hey, we think that interest rates could they're high right now, but we think that potentially in the latter half of 2023, who knows, we have a long year ahead of us, they could start coming down. You're already starting to see the data of inflation tapering off. It's not it's still increasing, but not as fast of a rate. So if that continues, if that that kind of crescendo, that, that top of the hill kind of starts going down, then maybe Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve take their foot off the gas pedal. Maybe interest rates start going down. Okay, if that's your crystal ball, what you're thinking, some clients come to me and say, I want a lender that has no prepayment penalty. I still want a fixed loan today, but there might be an opportunity in the latter half of this year to refinance for even even lower rate if, if you think this is the dominoes that'll play out. Okay, if that's the case, then they say, Huber, give me a fixed rate loan, but I want no prepayment penalty. I want to be able to get out of this in six months if I want to. Well, CMBS, you can't do that. I wouldn't even send to any CMBS shops because you have defeasance prepay penalty. Life companies can't do that. Banks t- banks typically have a step-down prepay. So in your first year, you're paying 5% of the loan if you pay it off. There's only one lender in that space that typically has a no prepay penalty, and that's going to be credit unions. So I would take his deal and go hard on the credit union. I'd still maybe send it to a couple banks and make it very clear that, hey, it's very important that my client has no prepay penalty or that there's some type of language and we negotiate that language. There's some type of language around it that gets them out of that prepay if one, two, or three things happen. But that's uphill battle. That's still hard to pull off. You have to negotiate that. Well, again, the personality of a credit union is, no, we typically don't have prepays anyway, so that's not even a factor I would need to negotiate. So that's like five of the eight and then Again, all of them have different things that they're looking for, different strengths, different weaknesses. And the magic of of being an advisor, which I love, is helping my clients save time by already understanding their motivation, what's important to my client, their business plan, and already going to, even within the how many credit unions are out there, there's hundreds of credit unions. How do you know the right ones to go to, right? So then that's part of the job of a capital markets broker is knowing who are the right ones or the best ones at any given time to go to. Huber, thank you so much for uh, all of that great advice. Tell us, how do we get in touch with you to take advantage of your services? Absolutely. So LinkedIn is probably the best for me. You can go to our website. So as far as the business is concerned, StackSource, S-T-A-C-K, source of sourcing the capital stack, StackSource.com. That's the company. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me personally, LinkedIn is probably the best way. I try to post regularly, share little things or what I'm seeing in the capital markets. I try to share that with my community. So while in my formative years, it was all about learning. And it still is. Now it's about learning and sharing for me. So I love taking what I learn. And then similar to what you've experienced today, packaging it up or saying it in maybe a slightly different way that'll resonate with my audience and my audience is people that are trying to learn and make sense of what's going on in commercial real estate capital markets. Huber, it's been wonderful having you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Allen. I appreciate it. Thank you for the time. And thank you everyone listening today. Enlightened investors, don't go yet. I have just a couple of quick requests. You know the drill. Like, share, and subscribe. But we also need your help to build our audience, so please go to your favorite podcast app and leave us a five-star rating and review. I'll be most grateful. Until next time, 
prosper, and live abundantly. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steed Talker Capital, a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steed Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steed Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at steedtalker.com.